Hi, this is Melanie. We're back with another episode of The Markup by Mediaverse. We're talking with Anita Nandwani of the Tennessee Lookout, who credits themselves as our watchdog, telling the stories of politics and policy that affect the people of the volunteer state. On April 14th, Davidson County Chancery Court Judge Ann Martin denied Mason's request for a preliminary injunction that would halt the state's takeover of the town's finances. Yet the judge considered Jason Munpower's broad authority of their finances part of his role as state comptroller. We'll keep watching this case and add our updates. Here's our conversation with Anita Nantuani. So what you saying? So what you saying? So Anita, what I want to say is I loved your article that broke on Mason, Tennessee out of the Tennessee Lookout, which is probably one of my favorite state outlets um, right now. I just I love the character of the social media. I love the journalism. What was it about this story that made you say, I need to write about this? Can you tell us about that process? Sure. So Um, I write for the Tennessee Lookout, and we're a really small publication. We are just three reporters and an editor. We're fairly new, a couple years old. But I've been a reporter in Tennessee for 20 years. And the way I learned about what was happening in Mason initially was an email from the Comptroller's office. I get maybe two emails a week from the Comptroller's office, They're usually really dry emails about an audit of, you know, an entity or a city. But this one was really kind of different than what I've seen before. The the subject line was something along the lines of the comptroller is writing an open letter to the citizens of Mason, Tennessee. And so that caught my eye right away. I mean, I should say that I had not heard of Mason, Tennessee before I got that uh, email. And I um, was intrigued enough to pick up the phone and call the vice mayor of Mason, a a woman named Virginia Rivers. And we had a conversation where I said, can you explain the context? um, What's going on? And after that conversation, in which she just kind of really let loose about how angry they were that after that conversation, which honestly didn't last very long, I thought, well, I, we should go out there. We should have a longer conversation um, so I can learn about this more. And so that's, that's how the story started. Right. And even when you look at the letter that he wrote to the citizens, it was just such a, such an effort you know, by the state to really explain their case for why they wanted to come in. And it was something about the line where it says Mason's town government has been poorly run for at least 20 years. And I just remember reading your article. I remember somebody had retweeted it. And I remember seeing that hostile takeover and how the residents saw it in one way, like we're leading an effort to take back the city and lead it in the right direction. And the state had a different idea. Where do we figure out where the truth lies 
as a journalist? Like, how, how did you go about in the process of kind of fleshing that out for not only for the state, especially after they had to take a few steps back from that particular position that they were taking with Mason and even with the people of Mason? Well, I think, you know, where the truth lies is um, is not a question that journalists can always answer or even often answer. Exactly. But what I can do is, is try and, and really capture the perspective of all of the, the parties that have an interest in what's happening with Mason. And so, you know, from the controller's side, I thought, that was sort of an easy lift. You know, they explained their perspective. I know the Comptroller's office to be staffed by CPAs and they're really immersed in financials and numbers. And I could understand that. I've written about audits of cities and towns before, but to understand the vice mayor's perspective and the, you know, the residents of Mason's I felt like it was going to require a much longer conversation with more than one person. It wasn't a, it wasn't a story about a lawsuit where you pick up the phone and you call the plaintiff's lawyer and then you call the defendant's lawyer. And then you're like, okay, person A says this person B says this. I felt like it required um, particularly when someone is making claims that this is that race is at the heart of this that's just not a short conversation to have. And that conversation, you know, where I sat down with the vice mayor, you know, at one point she said, well, you got to look back 150 years. So I knew it wasn't going to be a short conversation. And right. Yeah. There's so many and, layers to it. So many. Right. Yeah. And I think what you have to do as a journalist is not, is to give each perspective the time that it deserves. Maybe the controller or his staff could, could explain their perspective and their analysis in a relatively short conversation, send me some paperwork, I could understand it. But to understand the other perspective, I think really what you do as a reporter is you just, you have to give people time and you just have to sit there and listen and really try and understand. We'll be back after this break. You're listening to The Markup by Mediaverse. I'm Richard. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Mediaverse. If you want to follow the show, it's at Markup by MV altogether. If you want to follow my co-host Melanie, she's at Mellow Hello. A lot of emotion was pouring out, especially as you mentioned from the vice mayor, uh, speaking, you know, about this being a hostile takeover and speaking about this in terms of stark black and white relations. How do you manage that kind of an atmosphere when you're there in person or or you're even you're 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 sort of maybe remoting in? Were you there in person for some of those meetings or how how did you handle that aspect of it? So I was there for their first community meeting after residents the citizens of Mason got that letter from the comptroller and I'm there working. I'm there taking notes. I'm there trying to um, get quotes correct 
but I'm also there trying to, you know, before the meeting started, I'm trying to talk with people um, and understand, you know, what, why they're at the meeting, what they want for the future of their community. And I will say it was, I couldn't get anyone to talk to me on the record. Residents were really not wanting to spend a lot of time talking with me, which I understand that's their choice. But um, I think my job is to try and capture if I'm, if I'm covering a meeting, my job is to try and capture what's being said and also kind of the nuances. Um, and so, you know, that whole idea of when you're writing a story, you should try and show and not tell that really just comes down to like, wow, that was a really good quote. I need to make sure that gets in there. I need to make sure I've written this down correctly. And so, I'm not sure if that's a great answer to your question about capturing emotions, but that's how I approach it. So let's look at the data of it all. I know eventually Ford came out with a statement, you know, basically saying, you know, to the most point, you know, that they are listening and they are waiting for, you know, whatever facts and evidence that may come out. Um, how do you think a process like, like this kind of maybe complicates uh, development in a part of the state that may not be as developed? And there are so many stakeholders, whether they are the residents and the municipal government of Mason, you have the state, as well as Ford when it comes to Blue Oval City. What was the data that may have been the most striking that came out of this process as a journalist, as you were writing this and reporting on this? I have a, a few different answers to that question. So first of all, the fact that this wasn't happening in isolation, this was happening um, and is happening just before the state is about to get one of the biggest manufacturing investments in its history. That's a, you know, that data is a 600 billion dollar investment by Ford. Right. Yeah. That is that is 26 or 27,000 direct or indirect jobs to an area, a part of Tennessee that that just hasn't had that kind of investment, that kind of opportunity before. Um and this is a pretty high stakes um development ushered in by the largely Republican legislature. And so in terms of the data, that context is really important. Even in the in the comptroller's letter to the residents of Mason, he mentions the Ford development. Right. Well I think I think all of those numbers, all that data about the amount of investment is really key because that points to how much this part of Tennessee is about to change. And it's going to change really fast. They're going to break ground on this mega site in a matter of weeks, I believe. The other, the other thing I was thinking of when you were asking your question is the amount of conflicting information I've gotten. So the comptroller who, you know, the comptroller and his staff have said Mason, you know, is 
$600,000 in debt. And then the people of the, the leaders in Mason have told me that's just completely untrue. And it's left me with a little bit of a dilemma because as I said, I've been reporting on the controller and the work that they do for a couple of decades. I know them to be very thorough. It's, they have a bunch of CPAs. They're not, uh, their, their workforce is pretty um, nerdy, I guess is the word I would use. Um, and have, I have found their information to be trustworthy. And one of the things I realized, and this is just one example, when the comptroller was putting out their debt figures and the vice mayor called me and she said, I don't understand how we can get the message out that these numbers are wrong. And I said, well, just, just tell me, why do you think they're wrong? And it boiled down to the fact that the comptroller was relying on two-year-old numbers because the budgets hadn't been submitted and audited. And nobody was proactively telling me this. I kind of mm. had to figure it out. So it was sort of a messy story to report because I uh, generally trust as a journalist, the data that comes out of the comptroller's office. I found uh, the vice mayor to be an extremely credible person. And so it was just a little bit confusing for me to sort it all out. And I, I don't think all of it's been sorted out at this point. This is the Markup by Mediaverse. We'll be back after this short break. So what you saying? Hey, y'all, this is Melanie. If you want to follow me on the Twitter to get a taste of my black rage, you can follow me at Mellow Hello. Hello. Hope to see you in these Twitter streets. It seemed as if the comptroller came to the city without full information, right? And so that sort of, from my perspective, that kind of changed the story a bit and, and, and kind of led to one of the reasons why they started to walk back uh, their, their sort of indefinite hold of the city, right? Now, that, now we have sort of a time frame after the city has been able to sort of sit down with the controller and explain where they are. Don't, do you, am I off base with that? I think one takeaway I have is the lack of good communication between the comptroller and mm. the leadership in Mason. I don't know who's to blame for that entirely. Bigger problem than maybe it should have. I think also the attention that the situation in Mason ultimately got, it's, it's gotten national attention, has impacted the actions of the comptroller. You know, they they haven't told me that, but I, I don't think you can be immune from um, the, the, the coverage, the discussion on social media, and the reaction from Ford if you're the comptroller in Tennessee. You, you just don't operate in a vacuum. So I think all of that um, kind of led to things being in a slightly different place now than they were just a couple of weeks ago. Why do you think this story resonated nationally? What was it about that made people like, oh, we might need to report on this on a national level? What, what resonated nationally? I also love your thoughtfulness. Yeah, um, I love that pause that you take. 
Um, you know, I was really drawn to this story and I would assume that people were drawn to the story for similar reasons. A big part of it was just hearing the perspective of the leaders in Mason and hearing what they had to say as um, a largely black slate of leadership of this small town that had been led by white leaders for decades, uh, a small majority black town. There's a little bit of a David and Goliath element to it um, that I felt after talking with the people in Mason, particularly the vice mayor, who's just an extremely eloquent advocate for her community. And so I think her voice was really compelling when I listened to it. And I think when people have seen her on, you know, video interviews or seen her quotes and stories, I think she has just been a really compelling figure. But I, you know, I think the fact that this is about race and money is, is really what has drawn the most attention. And, you know, I've learned a few things just reading some of the, the fallout and the commentary and people's takes on this about a history of Black-led communities um, being er erased or right. dismantled. And I think for people who are steeped in that history, and, and I, I wish I, I were, but I'm, I'm not, but I, I've seen so many people react emotionally to what's happening in Mason and, and draw those lines to what's happened elsewhere. So I think there are a lot of reasons people found this kind of a compelling story. I, I think it is. You know, this is a town that is essentially fighting to not be taken off the map. We'll be back after this break. What's up, y'all? This is Melanie, co-host with my guy Richard with The Markup by Mediaverse. You can also follow us on Twitter at Markup by Mediaverse. Don't forget the ESPN. I love the conversation that we had with Echo Day, who just seemed to marvel at the history of the people that were still there who owned acres of land and owned property and businesses. It's a very self-determined town that is really, like you said, trying to keep its place on the map. I, I love that. Yeah. So Anita, t talk to us about being from a small outlet, taking on a story that has blossomed into national importance. And because I think with Echo, one of the things that we noticed about her was that she was trying, still trying to be noticed for her work that start that helped start all of this. And, and, and some people were like, wait until the New York Times gets this or wait until the, the Washington Post <laughs> gets it. How do you feel about that kind of stuff? I mean, you're there on the ground and your work and Echo's work, you guys really lit the fire that got this whole thing started. Well, first of all, before I went to Mason, I read as much as was live online of Echo's reporting on the community. And I, I reached out to her on Twitter just to say, you know, I've read all your stories about Mason. They're, they're really good work and really helped. It really helped me understand um, what had already been covered in Mason. 
And I think there are um, that reporters are typically divided into these two camps. You're either a local reporter or you're a national reporter. And sometimes that leads to, I think, you know, sometimes you see, um, and I'm, I'm not just, I'm not speaking just for myself, but for other, you know, I'm doing air quotes, local reporters, you see national reporters parachute in, uh, write about your community or something that you know really well, and then they, they leave. And whether they do a good job or a not so good job, um, they are kind of standing on your shoulders and you know it and your readers know it, um, but not everybody is aware of that. And, and I would say that for the, the reporting that I've done on Mason, I've been standing on Echo Day's shoulders. Um, but I guess the other side of that and is that every reporter brings their own eyes and ears to a story. And that's really important. I'm still, I'm I'm of an age where I remember that most major cities had two competing newspapers. I started out at the scrappy San Francisco Examiner, which was the afternoon competitor to the kind of institutional San Francisco Chronicle. And I just remember how much fun it was to beat the Mm. Chronicle. But for readers, um, because that's all sort of like inside baseball, but for readers, you, you got different perspectives. You got a different set of eyes and ears on a story. And I think it provides more depth and understanding and different perspectives. So right. I think that's a, overall on balance. That's a good thing. <laughs> where, can our, where can our listeners find you on social media? Sure. I'm at Anita Woodwani. That's A-N-I-T-A-W-A-D-H-W-A-N-I on Twitter. That's really my main social media um, hangout. Um, and then we, if you'd like to read the lookout and our coverage, we're at tennesseelookout.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anita. We appreciate Thank you, Anita. You. And the work that you've done has been incredible. And we look forward to following the story with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for episode two of chapter four. We appreciate you listening. See you next time. So what you say?